the more seriously you take your time at Memory Blue, you never know where it's going to take you. And I think back to it all the time. I'm glad I worked so hard when I was there because it set me up for success. Hi, I'm Mark Gagne. And I'm Chris Corcoran, and you're listening to Tech Sales is for Hustlers. Tech Sales for Hustlers is a podcast where we catch up with Memory Blue alums and reminisce about their start in high-tech sales with us. Let's go get some, Corcoran. Gagne, you know I'm ready. Today, we have Trey Serber on the podcast. Three very interesting fun facts about Trey. One, he was alumni of the year, runner-up. Silver medalist, which that in itself is a very worthy accolade. And I say that with all seriousness. Number two, during his time at Memory Blue as an SCR, he had his quota every month. That's baller status right there. Three, this is like one we're going to talk a little bit about. He lived in Amsterdam in Holland, the Netherlands, the Dutch, the team with the most badass soccer uniforms for three years. He worked there for Dell Tech. And while he was there, Annie, his second child, graced the world with her presence. And now, Mr. Serber is an AE at Tableau Software. So, Trey, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. Trey, great seeing you. We appreciate you making time and can't wait to unpack your career and share it with our listeners. I want to hear some knowledge, Trey. I want you to drop some science on us. But before we do that, let's get back in the time machine a little bit. And just for the listeners to get to know you a little, tell us a little bit about yourself. We need to go into super detail, but where you were born, where you grew up. Well, give us a little bit of what you like as a kid and we'll go from there. Yeah. So thanks, Mark. My history is varied in terms of where I've been and what I've done as referenced by the living in Netherlands piece. But basically, I grew up in a small town outside of D.C. called Winchester, Virginia. It's about an hour outside. Grew up with my father in high tech sales his entire career. And he commuted into D.C., Wanted needed to be by an airport, so right beside Dulles. So Winchester was a good place to settle down. Went to a pretty good high school, was able to get into Hampton Sydney College, which is in South Central Virginia, all male school. Let's talk about that. Chris turned me on to that school and some of our best hires have come out of that place. And when I remember Chris told me about it, I was like, what do you mean we're gonna hire these guys from this all dude school? I think everyone who's worked for us from that school has been a really good person, good at their job. Well, two things. What were you like as a kid growing up? Did you think you're going to go into sales because your father was in sales? And then talk to us a little about why you decided to go to Hampton Sydney. Yeah. So basically my whole life, I've been an extrovert, right? So in terms of thinking about what I wanted to do, I've always looked up to my father. He's always given great life advice. So knew that I wanted to be associated with high tech, not always knew that I was going to go the sales route, but the older I got, the more I realized sales can be fun. And I've always looked at sales as a challenge, as a puzzle, right? So basically what my father did combined with wanting to play to my strengths, about halfway through college, I kind of realized, okay, sales is the direction I want to go. How do I parlay an economic degree into a career in sales? So half of my college career was really trying to understand myself, how to apply economics to technology. At that point, and still to this day, Hampton Sydney doesn't have a sales curriculum. Not many colleges do, as you guys know. I did hear that you guys are going to do maybe a sister podcast on sales curriculums, which I think is super interesting because the more that colleges can come to grips with 
sales is leading most companies in one way or another, and they really need to have that facet to the curriculum, the better off the colleges are going to be. So I'm a huge advocate of that. Wish I could have found one within my college when I was there at the point I realized I was going to go into sales. But basically after that, once I graduated, I understood that sales is where I wanted and needed to be. Hampton, Sydney. Yeah. Just being there affects me as a person and as a salesperson. So being at a college that's all male is interesting, right? It's only one of three colleges left in the world or in the US that's all male. So put myself out there in deciding I wanted to go there, had a great economics program, but also the men that go there are very outgoing and tend to be extroverts in themselves. What comes out of there seems to be strong finance majors, politicians, as well as very good writers as well. And the reason is they have a rhetoric program. So basically rhetoric is in its purest form, persuasive writing and speaking. So actually one piece of Hampton Sydney before you graduate is that you have to pass a rhetoric proficiency exam. And I thought that was interesting when I went in, but super interesting once I realized sales was the direction I wanted to go. So started to put a little more emphasis on it when I was at college to pay a little more attention, what they were teaching in terms of how to write persuasively and how to be a good public speaker. And I think I came out much for the better after I graduated, having that foundation for sure. What I love about Hampton City, the Tigers look out for one another. You're such a strong alumni network. You treat that very seriously, Trey. Yeah, absolutely. We're all very close. It's only about, it varies between 1,000 and 1,500 attendees total for all four years. So everyone knows each other. After we graduate, a very strong alumni network. I think we're second in alumni network only to VMI, which has an absolutely incredible alumni network as well. A lot of which is in Richmond, which kind of parlays into where I ended up after college. So I graduated Hampton, Sydney, and was able to get my first real sales job in, in Richmond. As far as previous sales experience, I actually worked at a bike shop over the summers back in Winchester for three summers fixing bikes. But every once in a while, I'd get out on the floor and I'd sell some bikes. And so the manager said, wow, we wish we could hire you on permanently to sell bikes. And at that point also was when I understood that sales might be a strength. So fast forward again to Richmond, moved there, was able to get a pretty good job selling, um, wait for it, ceiling tiles. (laughs) (laughs) I was able to use the Hampton City Network to get a job under one of my classmates whose father ran one of the largest Armstrong distributors on the East Coast. So I was selling hundreds of thousands of square feet of basically styrofoam and sawdust and really allowed me to cut my teeth in terms of professional sales setting. A little bit different in terms of the customer was a little more kind of millionaire next door, if you've read that, more blue collar, but at the same time, smart, very smart in terms of pricing, in terms of learning how to negotiate. So I enjoyed that quite a bit. Trey, so was that a field sales role? Were you out going and visiting customers, meeting people face-to-face? Or tell our listeners a little bit more about what you were doing in that role. Yeah. So initially, when I got there, I was basically sales support. So it was a tiny office. It was just the owner, an office manager, the owner's son, who was basically the same position I was, and then a senior sales guy. That was basically it. Four or five of us there that were covering hundreds of miles of needs for ceiling tiles. So my initial role was basically sales support, doing layouts and quotes, doing some estimating for our lead sales guy to go out there more in the field and sell directly to those that 
were installing ceiling tiles. So our main goal was to persuade whatever the general contractor, subcontractor was in using our particular ceiling tiles. So the better pricing, the better relationships that we had, the more the company grew. So after about a year of doing that, moved up into more of a scouting inside sales role where I would literally drive around to different sites, basically trying to understand where the work was. And then once I understood where the work was, literally getting out of my truck, walking up to whoever it was saying, hey, who's in charge of ceiling tiles and going and giving quotes right on the spot. So, I mean, we're talking guerrilla sales at its most kind of purest form. And you want to talk about difficult? It was difficult. It was scary but both of which made me a stronger salesperson for it. So kind of a hybrid role between sales support and inside sales was able to make a few very decent sales doing this. And I mean, that's cold calling in its most pure form. And when you get a win like that, nothing feels better than that. Nothing. So that also helped seal the deal for me wanting to be in sales. So were you selling to commercial real estate? Yeah. So it's all commercial contractors. So it's basically architect specs out building something with the owner. They work together. They hire a general contractor to go. Architect works with the GC, works with the owner to build the specs. They spec a ceiling. They don't necessarily spec what's being used in the ceiling. So that's my niche. That's where I am in that if there's any question about material being used for that ceiling, that's where we want to take that market share. So most of the time I'm working with very large commercial subcontractors that just do ceilings. And they have maybe three competitors, us and two others that they could go with. Sometimes they use us, sometimes not. If we're talking about a million plus square feet, that's never a layup. It's very strategic pricing, very strategic in terms of how we can get the material to you. And yeah, lots of moving pieces. So I guess one of the challenges I would think would be, how do you differentiate yourself from your competitors, a ceiling tile? Yeah. And that's a very good question. And that comes back to the opposite of solution sales like I'm doing now, right? Or like you guys teach. And the opposite of solution sale is commodity sales. So commodities being interchangeable items that the person buying may or may not care what goes in. So in those cases, marketing is huge in terms of making sure that the brand stays the brand. Now, luckily, I was working for the distributor of Armstrong ceiling tiles, which is basically, if not one in two every year in terms of ceiling tile distributors or manufacturers. So I had the brand name going for me, which was nice. Everyone knew who I was walking in. But at the same time, that gets into a whole other group of challenges, which are, okay, well, yeah, I know who you are, but what kind of pricing can you give me? What kind of guarantees or SLAs, if you want to tie them to high tech? can you give me on delivery support? And what if something goes wrong? And that's where the real selling starts. It's okay, here's the package for this particular project. Here's the pricing we can guarantee. Here are the SLAs we guarantee. And oh, by the way, you're going to be going with the highest quality product on the market. Did that lead us to wins every time? No, absolutely not. Right? Because again, it's kind of project by project. And if the competitor decides he wants to swoop in and drop his pants, it's not a whole lot we can do. I mean, there was only a handful of customers that we had that would still go with us if the competitor dropped their pants that far. So just always had to be on the lookout for that and really build that relationship. So you did that for how long until you ended up with us? And let's talk about that transition. So that's a good question. So an interesting transition. I did this for about two and a half years. 
got to a point where the senior sales guy was still there. I wasn't sure this is what I wanted to do forever. Still knew I wanted to get into high tech, but was still learning and actually got, got sold on the money you can make in insurance. And so went to an insurance company for- Great. Did my insurance sales guy sell you insurance? <laughs> no, but you're right. It could have been anybody's insurance guy, right? Who yeah. Hey, who, you have any friends? Who do you know? No, basically went to one of those career days where they get everyone in a room. And if anybody can do insurance recruiting, it's insurance recruiting people. Oh, yeah. And so basically got sold on it. Not a big name insurance company. I was only there for six months. Realized very quickly this is not- what I wanted to do wasn't learning really anything practical. It's hard though. That's hand-to-hand combat and you're selling someone that in itself, I'm sure was a good experience in some many ways. Yeah, it is. You know, I learned a lot about what makes a good salesperson and why selling and how you do it is so important because with insurance sales, yeah, it's cutthroat. You're in there, you are trying to basically sell hopes and dreams to use a cliche, but at the same time, for those in there that are looking for a more serious, steadfast position in sales, it's up and down. You really have to be an insurance guy from the start, or you're not going to really feel like it's there for your long term. So basically, I left there and went all in for a high tech sales position. So enter Mark and Chris with Memory Blue. And if we go back to my father, who worked for actually in storage, worked for a federal storage bar, so a reseller who sold Hitachi storage to the government and always did very well in his role, liked it a lot. He's a very technical type of seller. He worked very closely with a partner of his who just happened to be Mark's old boss from MicroStrategy. That's right, Mr. B. And so when my father was talking to Mark's old boss, he mentioned, hey, Mark did extremely well for me as a seller at MicroStrat, starting this really cool new company that's like a sales boot camp. Your model was so new back then and so innovative, not a lot of people knew about it. And I said, wow, that's interesting. Just for the listeners, this is in July of 2008-ish, a <laughs> decade ago. Chris and I were still in our early 30s. How long had you guys been doing Memory Blue by that point? I forget. Started in your basement, right, Chris? Yeah, it was Mark's basement. We started in 2002. Yeah, because when I got there, there was 10 people. There's just 10 of us. <laughs> I sat right in front of Mark. Actually, no, I sat right in front of Chris, <laughs> right next to Mark. Then Lisa came in and Lisa was in front. But yeah, you want to talk about the bullpen? <laughs> Dude, 10 people? That's it. Get the bell ready. So it was Philippe. Philippe. Philippe It was Schieffer. Schieffer. Oh, hell. Mr. Grant Way. Dave Collins. Dave Collins. Zach Gossin. Zach. Alex Fatovic. Faktovic. Faktovic. I know. We always used to mess with him. Footballer. Melinda. Melinda. Melinda, call me back. Melinda. There you go. And Kristen Brandt. CB. CB. Now Miss Schieffer. Now Miss Schieffer. That's right. Mm -hmm. The love always starts at Memory Blue, man. So, all right, so you're Mr. BB. Andreas is like, hey, check out these guys who work for Memory Blue. And then you check this out and walk us through that. So, do you remember any of that? Or was it just you? Have you blocked it all out? It was like, yeah. So, dad said, look, it's tricky getting into high tech sales coming from different industries. And I said, yeah, obviously it is. I looked around quite a bit, being in Richmond at the time, trying to get a job in Northern Virginia. 
in high tech with no experience, that was tricky. So when so when Andreas came in and basically pitched Memory Blue, talked about how good of a job Mark was doing, it was just extremely interesting, right? There was some risk there for me, obviously, in I would be making a little bit less money than I was making. But in terms of having a foundation for high-tech sales, I felt that there was no better place to be because I would A, get the experience I needed with, hey, what is starting from zero, basically. Having a little bit of background from dad, but not a whole, for all intents and purposes, none. So I felt comfortable going to a place where they were gonna be comfortable with me not knowing anything. So I was happy about that. And I was equally as happy that the model is that you get hired out to join one of their customers. That's the model of Memory Blue. So I was not only learning the industry, learning how to sell, but also potentially getting hired into one of my clients. So with that all said and done, packed it up, left my girlfriend at the time, Lacey, who I'd met in Richmond. Dad, your wife, the mother of your two children. The mother of my two children now, but said, hey, I got a really good opportunity to fast track it into high tech. I got to go to Northern Virginia. And luckily, my best buddy was already up there, already had a house in Alexandria and said, hey, come live with me. You can do it over a weekend. So basically, I ended my lease, packed it up and said, we're going to do long distance, honey, but it's going to work. And fast forward a few months later, she was able to move up there. So we'll save that for another segment here. But she moved up there. I got in with Memory Blue and just really enjoyed it. What was it like? You had gone from selling the ceiling tiles for a little while, hoofing it, right, out in the truck, driving around, making some phone calls, and then doing the the hand-to-hand combat and then insurance. And now you're on the phone almost exclusively, right? Or actually exclusively, really. Yeah. And that's one other reservation that I had, right, was I'm going to be on the phone. How much? For how long? Doing what? Making cold calls? That sounds hard. And the answer is yes, it is hard. Uh, It's very hard. And talking to a few other folks who had graduated or were associated with Memory Blue to sell me on it. And I've since sold others into joining Memory Blue as well. You got names? Oh, yeah. Ray Shields. Ray Shields. Tyler Yur. Tyler Yur. Oh, yeah. I can go on. Tyler Yur is the original Psycho T. (laughs) The original Psycho T? He will not like that being uh, from Wake. (laughs) Yeah, Tyler and I were very close up here in the DC area. And this was quite a few years after I had left Memory Blue. And he approached me and said, hey, how do I get into tech? And I said, well, I've got a great way for you to do it. And I always enjoy talking to people about Memory Blue, about my experience, why it's made me so successful where I am now. Looking at what you guys have built since I left is phenomenal. (laughs) Not just with going from the office across from the dump to where you are today. You were in the dump. Right down from the toilet bowl. It's great. So Trey, looking back, what advice would you give yourself the night before you started at Memory Blue? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, it's basically the same advice that I gave everyone that I've talked to about working there. It was really work harder than you've ever worked before, period. Every single day. Be competitive and take every day seriously. And the reason is because the next meeting you set may be the one that gets you hired into that company which is a good segue into the most important meeting I've ever set, which was one for ScienceLogic, which was one of the two clients that I worked for when I was at Memory Blue. I'd spent probably the better portion of my time at Memory Blue trying to get this one meeting with a very high up IT executive within Army. And I got it. And I mean, this is the kind of meeting you get where your client 
there was a party. And so they were super excited. I can't even tell you if they won that particular deal because that particular deal wasn't as important as having the relationship because they still have the relationship. They were able to leverage that to sell more kind of smaller deals throughout the years. But again, lots and lots can start at Memory Blue, right? In terms of relationships that you help your clients build, the kind of advice and training that you get from Chris and Mark and his excellent management team, I mean, goes straight into literally changing the world, right? Whether it be for your particular client or yourself. So the more seriously you take your time at Memory Blue, you never know where it's going to take you. And I know that sounds a little cliche, but it's extremely important. And I think back to it all the time. I'm glad I worked so hard when I was there because it set me up for success. Hey, Trey, when you were learning the game, Memory Blue, what became your signature move? Like, what were you just like, this is what I'm good at as an SDR? Signature move. I wasn't afraid to talk to anybody as high up as they were. It was more the higher up they were, the harder it was, the more exciting it was. So when I was on those calls, making those pitches to those very high ranking employees at the time, that was very exciting. And the more you do, the more you want to do. So I feel like that was my weapon was my ability to get the meeting and then for those meetings to go pretty well. That along with making it just a heck of a lot of dials every day. And you were on Science Logic, which we'll talk about in a sec. You were on IMC. And I remember that was an information management consultant with Brad Schieber. Oh, yeah. Love that guy. He was a heck of a sales guy. Wasn't he? Or he still is. Don't worry. Good. Yep. So selling content management solutions, did some IBM Fionet content management solutions and kind of other very complex solutions that they would provide. Loved working with them. So split my time between IMC and ScienceLogic. Initially, I was just on IMC and then about halfway into my tenure, got into ScienceLogic, did some very cool things for them. They're a very cool company. ScienceLogic does IT management. They basically provide an IT management platform to go out and sit within your data centers and monitor and manage all of your IT environment. So incredibly important solutions. And I was just very happy and fortunate to be put on that account. And you hit your quota every month. How'd you do that? Being competitive. I mean, having the numbers up on the big board is critical, I think, in every fast-paced sales environment. Also, why I think it's important from an inside sales role to be in an office setting and why it's tricky in the times now of COVID because you can't really get that ding-ding, right? There's no bell or gong in the office. There's no like, again, for as cliche as it is, it promotes energy. And energy is what you need every single day in sales. You got to find it somewhere. And those who find it within competition have a huge leg up on being successful. So very early on, regardless of what sales position you're in, if you're able to peg someone or something as your competitive benchmark, you're going to do well. So I picked a few at my time in Memory Blue to peg against. Oh, do tell. Well, Grant was doing very well. Actually, Nat Semple was basically my mentor and he did very well and he got hired out. And so a lot of my competition was making sure that I could be as good as he was. I mean, he's an all-star. He's a natural man. And hopefully at some point you can have him on too. Oh, we'll have him on. He's another former insurance guy too. There you go. Our insurance guy did refer us. Oh no, he he referred us to our insurance guy. There you go. Love it. Memory Blue alumni, is your company actively trying to fill open sales roles with high achieving ballers? 
The Memory Blue Rising Stars program is a unique outplacement service designed to benefit our alumni and our tenured sales development professionals at the same time. Most of the SDRs that work on our client campaigns are under contract for a specific amount of time. Once the SDR's contract expires, he or she may wish to explore various new career opportunities. We call these well-trained hustlers our rising stars, and this is where you come in. Every single member of our alumni network has full access to hire our rising stars into their current company at zero cost. Whenever we have a new rising star available, we'll drop our full alumni group an email letting you know about the opportunity. This benefit gives alumni and their current employers a huge edge in closing the sales development talent gap. It also gives you the inside track on cashing in any referral fees associated with referring new hires. If you're looking for tomorrow's sales stars today, head over to memoryblue.com slash alumni. So Server, besides yourself, of these folks you've mentioned in Corcoran, yeah, that was a good class. Ooh, the, yeah. that, was a, that was a five-star class. It was. All those names he was dropping. Who was the best SCR you worked with besides yourself in the, back in your heyday there at MB? I certainly wasn't the best, but Zach Gossin was awesome. James Schieffer was incredible. Learned a whole lot from both of those guys. Schieffer made it look effortless, right? In how he would get it. Gossin was just one of the smartest SDRs I think I worked with, just in terms of really understanding the solution. And yes, when you're with Memory Blue, it's like, am I associated with the client? Yes, not quite as much as if I was a direct employee. But what Zach Gossin really taught me was the better you understand what they're really selling and what they're really doing, the better SDR you can be. So learned a whole heck of a lot from him. But everybody there was good. I just remember being it being not easy to be number one or number two within that group, man. Just a bunch of all-stars, like you said. Philippe was awesome. Yeah. All right. So let's just, I appreciate the Memory Blue. Chris, you got any more Memory Blue stories? I think our listeners would really appreciate and find value in listening to Trey describe what it's like. Because he had a good experience where he was working with a product, Science Logic, and then a ser- services company. Mm. So talk about the pros and cons both and what's harder, what's easier. Great question. So yeah, one thing that is harder to understand before you actually get into high tech is the difference in the sale of between products and services. It's very different. Me having more product expertise, product sales expertise, services is hard. It takes a little bit different of a mindset. Some people are extremely good at selling services. Some companies, that's all they sell. But the difference really between products and services is when you're selling a product, it's a lot more tangible, the ROI. When you're selling a service, usually more than 50% is going to be intangible as far as the ROI goes. So yes, I can show you the actual ROI on what you'd be saving, but the other half of the return on investment is going to be gaining efficiency, which yes, there's a piece of that too with when you're selling products like a platform. But with services, there's a piece of it that's insurance sales, right? You're selling either to a direct pain, hey, I need to insure this person, or a future pain, I will need to insure against something going wrong or insure against this happening. So I would say flat out services is a harder sale in a lot of instances because there's less to really grab onto and show your client in terms of the value. 
Is it any less necessary? Absolutely not. In a lot of cases, it's even more necessary because a lot of times it's tied to a product that may not be working, right? Or a set of products that need services or a consultant to come in there and fix. So I had to make a decision early on whether or not I wanted to go product or services. And guess what? I went into both. I didn't make the decision because after Science Logic, I went to one of our clients that's an MSP or managed service provider. I mean, the quintessential in between product services is a MSP because they sell not only hosting solutions, hey, take your servers and put it in our data centers, but also manage it for us or manage our network for us or manage our applications for us. So in that instance, I was selling half product, half services, and I was quoted half products, half services. So I think it was good. It gave me a good foundation when I was there at Savvis to really go in it, take my career any direction I wanted to. But yeah, it was a good transition, especially since it was a customer of ScienceLogic at the time. Well, it sounds like you benefited by having the opportunity to, to serve two clients, one a product-based client and the other a services-based client. So you can compare and contrast. And then ultimately, you ended up going to Savvis where you were doing a little bit of both. Yeah. And I think you're right. And I think that time at Memory Blue when I was doing both, I think I hearkened back to that when I got to Savvis, right? Because it's a switch in your brain that needs to be flipped depending on what kind of conversation you're having. And I mean, that was on a daily basis at Memory Blue because half of the day, my calls were IMC, the other half were Science Logic. So yeah, it made for a nice transition. So think for a moment over your entire sales career from back to when you were selling ceiling tile to now where you're at Tableau, what's been your most memorable deal, win or lose? So I would say I participated in an RFP at Savvis that was over a half million dollar RFP. It was one where I was in with a partner. So it's basically the partner and I. The majority of the RFP requirements were hosting and hosting related. So I was responsible for about more than 80% of the RFP. So that's still a significant amount of ACV or revenue that went into that. We spent about over 11 months going through demos, going through negotiations, tweaking the response, had to go down to RTP in Raleigh, Research Triangle Park, which is where they were based, and significant time outside of the office and inside trying to win this deal. Well, fast forward to 10 months into all of this, finding out that the daughter of the decision maker was dating a guy whose dad was on the deal team for Microsoft, one of the competitors who we were competing with. So basically, again, one of the deal's decision maker's daughter was dating a son of one of the Microsoft guys who was in the deal. So I think you can see how this deal turned out. Now, how much I can attribute that to that fact or not, I can't say for certain. I mean, we can obviously make some assumptions, but there were certainly a lot of lessons learned in terms of politics and how to ask the right questions. I mean, this one's a little tricky in terms of how in the world would you ask the right questions to find this out and understand. So it taught me quite a bit, though, in terms of how important politics play in RFPs. So how did you find out about this? So I found out because one of my champions within the deal, within the RFP, finally came out and said something in passing, couldn't say anything directly, but said that they have the upper hand. And I had, I pushed and I said, well, why? We have this, this, this going for us. 
Proximity-wise, we're better. We have closer data centers. We have better connectivity. We have better HIPAA compliance. We have better dot. And he said, yeah, but, and so just push, push. And if it finally came out, not directly, and I said, okay. So after that, hung up, gathered the team together and said, here's what we're up against, guys. We're a month away from decision and we got to figure out what's going on. So had this been a federal deal, there are lots of ways to expose this being commercial, less so. But yeah, it was tricky. And so had I exposed it earlier, we could have cut and run. This is a type of situation where it's just like, you got to cut and run. If you don't, you stand to spend 11 months and not win. So bad news early is something I live by and trying to understand the politics early on and getting any politics bad news early is key and critical. And I think I could have pushed my champion earlier to expose this earlier. Lots of lessons there. Lots of lessons. It's always the losses where you learn the most. At least I think that's what I believe. Yeah. And in terms of biggest wins, shortly after that had another RFP, significantly smaller. I think it was like maybe 200K. Same kind of deal. Went in there right off the bat, tried to uncover the politics, was able to do it. No huge roadblocks like this one and ended up winning the RFP. So it felt a little justified or redeemed and was actually able to utilize what I learned from the last RFP, I think, in this one. So just constantly tweaking your sales approach, constantly being vigilant of politics that's going on is critical to winning these deals, especially the big ones. All right, Trey. So another thing that I would like for you to talk about, or I think our listeners would love your insight. You did a great job kind of explaining product versus services. If you could take a few minutes and talk about the differences between selling commercial versus selling federal. Yeah. So in my experience, when I went to ScienceLogic right out of memory blue, I was doing kind of a hybrid role in terms of sales support, lead generation, and some very small deals taking on my own. And basically it was all federal and civilian that I was working on, so government sales. There's a very strong, within federal and government sales, the rules are very laid out. You know what you can do, what you can't do, what you can sell, what you can't sell, how to sell. And so from a procedural standpoint, it's a lot easier. However, the sales cycles are infinitely long. They would rather not make a decision than make a decision or so it seems in most of these large government deal cycles. That's completely opposite from commercial. And I left ScienceLogic, I've been 100% commercial since then. So you feel like you have a little bit more control in commercial situations in that you can formulate the process yourself a little bit better. I mean, yes, there are more questions as to how the sales cycle is going to turn out, but at least you have more control over some facets of it. Not to mention the fact that most of my commercial sales cycles, maybe the longest one that's not an RFP, maybe three months. And I mean, we're talking about deals that can be up to 300K a year, and they can make that decision sometimes within two months. So there are lots of differences between the two. With government, you have things like government contracts, contracting rules where you have to go through certain contracts. You have to do certain things, certain ways. You have to get certain partners involved. So it's more complex too. And that's what also adds to the deal cycle. With commercial, typically, if you need something, you get a partner or two or three to help you win the deal. But again, you have more agility when it comes to how you win. And, and typically, shorter deal cycles come out of it. So that's really what drove me to commercial. 
was the shorter deal cycles. Do you and your dad get into any fierce debates on federal versus commercial sales? No, we don't. But we do get into fights, hardware versus software. Because <laughs> I've always been a software guy and he's always been a hardware guy. And you know what he's always told me, right? What's that? But he said, Trey, you know the difference between hardware and software, don't you? I said, no, dad. What is that? And he said, hardware will eventually break. Software will eventually work. <laughs> I said, dad, I can't argue with that. That's good advice. And I swear a couple times a year, I'm talking to some hardware guy because he sold storage, right? Storage arrays, basically boxes. There could never be more truth to that. So the whole cloud model is lost on him. Don't ask him about cloud or AWS for sure. <laughs> Trey, let's talk a little bit about, so you got hired by ScienceLogic. You went to Savis. Great runs for anybody who wants to check what Trey did out on LinkedIn. You went to Dell Tech. You did really well there. And somehow you ended up working for them in Europe. And I know that's a question. Like people always ask that people early in their careers, Memory Blue, we've got six offices. So we can allow people to now, thankfully, that did exist when you worked with us. We had one dumpy office. Talk to us a little bit about your move to Dell Tech and how you positioned yourself to work for them overseas. Yeah, good question. So spent a couple of years with Savis, liked it, providing data center services for 60 data centers across the world. So it had a good name. We had a good position within the market. As such, we got acquired by CenturyLink. So if you're familiar with the data center space during that time, Terramark was one of our biggest, Savis's biggest competitors, provided data centers to some of the biggest guys, some of the biggest enterprises within the US and globally. They got acquired by Verizon. So what was happening was these ISPs were saying, wait a minute, we control a majority of the network into and out of these data centers. We can sell solutions. We can do solutions too. So let's just buy up the data centers and then have Verizon or CenturyLink reps sell these solutions. Well, didn't turn out too well for either. They gobbled up Terramark, they gobbled up Savis, and the rest is kind of history. There's not much left of those companies within these ISPs now. They just were basically added to Verizon services and CenturyLink's, I forget what Savis turned into, but basically had to leave, didn't want to stay through the transition. So was looking around Northern Virginia and Dell Tech had one like best place to work in Northern Virginia for like a couple years running, knew two or three people that worked there and like they couldn't give more glowing recommendations. So I said, all right, great. That's going to be the only place I really look. So went in for lengthy interviews. They had a few different product lines I could have gone to. I ended up deciding to go with information services called Gov1IQ, which is still going very strong. So Dell Tech provides a service called GovNIQ that as a government contractor of any size, we're not just talking about the Northrop's and the GDITs of the world, we're talking even the small kind of set aside guys. But if you want to be able to win more government contracts, you subscribe to Dell Tech's GovNIQ platform, and they have over 50 analysts on the back end doing all this research and feeding you Intel to help you win big government contracts. So when I was there, I got hired onto the Gov1IQ team to sell to not the biggest guys, not the Northrop's, but right below that, and basically sell them subscription services so they can win these government contracts. So all day, every day, I was talking to salespeople. So I was selling to salespeople. I was selling basically a service to salespeople. Now, you want to talk about a difficult sale to make? That was it. So I learned more from my time at Dell Tech than any sales job I've ever been at because 
when I was there, I learned how to sell the intangibles, learned how to sell to people that sell. And it was just very fulfilling. Everyone I had there, I was making an immediate impact. I was able to track the success of my customers. I was able to see them win more government contracts. And I think because I enjoyed my time there so much, it feeds on itself. And that kind of got me to the place of being one of the top guys for a few years, President's Club, and then ultimately being in the running for Alumni of the Year. 2011, Mark, Chris? I think it was 2010. And then everything happened in 2011 in terms of the competition. But was in the Alumni of the Year running with two incredibly bright and successful guys, one of which is, was in the data center space, doing absolutely incredible for one of his clients and where he worked now. So Chris and Mark did a very good job in interviewing us, letting us know what they appreciated about how well we've done after we graduated, had to send in all of my numbers, all of my stats for like the past three years leading up to it or something. And it was just a great experience, even though I didn't get number one, which I'm still a little salty about. I got some nice gifts. I'll tell you, people get upset about, so you're handling the, your defeat because I think Chris and Mark have like, we rigged the whole damn thing, which we didn't. Anyone who gets to that level of success based upon the number of people who've worked for us who are, who are all, I mean, so many ballers have worked for us. So it's good that you're upset, right? You're a competitive salesperson. You talked about that earlier. But I mean, you've done some pretty impressive things. Enough so which you somehow were able to go and get a job working over in the EU for a software company based in the US, which is almost virtually impossible to do. <laughs> yeah, it's tricky. So the story there is, my wife and I over a bottle of wine one night, this was in 2012, decided we wanted to do something crazy. And we're like, let's quit our jobs and like take sabbaticals and go live abroad or backpack through Europe, which was our main thing that we were thinking about doing was backpacking and just staying in Airbnbs, taking our one kid at the time, as hard as that would be. He's one year old at that time. And so we sobered up the next morning and said, wait, whoa, 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 let's take a step back and see what more logical steps we could take. So we both ended up getting on our respective career websites. Her, she was working for Salesforce at the time. She had been with Salesforce for seven years. I got on Dell Tech's career website. Obviously, Salesforce had a huge amount of global roles open. Dell Tech, not so much. They weren't quite as global. Yes, they had EMEA, APAC offices, they had offices in the Philippines, but not quite as global. So we decided to hold off on Dell Tech and just look at Salesforce. So she put her hat in for two roles. About a month later, she had to pick between the two because she had gotten a call back for both. And so she picked one and realized that she had about eight European competitors for this potential position. So we said, okay, there's no way we're gonna get this. So we went, went about our lives. Well, three weeks later, it's down to four. Whoa, that's crazy. Okay, well, but let's help prepare for your next interview because it's gonna be really hard. You probably won't get to the next round. Well, she aced it. Now it's down to two people. Now we have to look at each other and go, we're serious about this, right? You could get this. What if you get this? What are we gonna do? And she's like, let's go. And so we took the blue pill or the red pill. Blue, the memory blue pill. We took the pill and we made the jump. She got the role. She could have picked between London, Berlin, Amsterdam, somewhere in Spain and Marrakesh, Morocco. 
And so since my best buddy had worked for KPMG in Amsterdam, was there, had been there for two years, we said, okay, he's over there with his wife. Lacey's godparents are also Dutch that lived a little outside of Amsterdam. So it wasn't hard for us to choose Amsterdam. So we said, okay, let's go. So we sold our house, sold our two cars, and waited to tell everyone until about a month before we left. That includes our parents. With my role at Dell Tech, I had to wait until two weeks before we left because with sales, as everyone knows, at any point you say you're leaving, they could say, okay, even as well as I was doing, I had to kind of wait. So two weeks in before we left, I said, guys, we're moving to Amsterdam. I'd love to stay with you. Can we make something work out of the Europe office? And they pointed fingers and were like, I'm not sure if we've done this before. So I had to work with the EMEA recruitment, EMEA VPs of sales who also had no idea how to do this. And as it ends up two days before we leave for Amsterdam, get on a flight two days, they call me and they're like, wait, whoa, 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 we found something. So basically they were able to add me to the workbook, which is a product an ERP specifically for advertising agencies. That was a newer acquisition by Dell Tech based in Copenhagen, Denmark. And so I joined that sales team reporting to London, living in Amsterdam. So we both got over there on permanent contracts, which is also pretty unheard of for really any roles within Europe, because it's so hard to, to let people go, especially sales roles, is that typically you get put on a term contract, usually a one-year contract. So we were in very nice positions, both having permanent roles, both being able to kind of transition, have friends over there, because my buddy worked for KPMG, knowing Americans. But don't get me wrong, it's still very hard to transition into a new country. So it took us a little while to get our feet wet, but really started to enjoy it. I want to point out that you're being modest, which I appreciate, is that if had you not done so well at Dell Tech, I mean, you obviously were fulfilled in the role, but you blew it out of the water. If you look at your stats on here, they would not have even considered it. Yeah, probably not. And the reason is because when HR departments and recruiting departments get confused, it's usually not a good thing. But I was able to multi-thread, as we call it. I was able to have conversations going on with about four different individuals in Europe saying, how does this work? Because I had to learn the process too in knowing who to talk to, who actually pulled the strings, but also sell myself on how well I did here in the States to be able to make it happen. So yes, that definitely played a role in allowing me to get over there. And I mean, I was probably minutes away from not getting that role. And then who knows what I would have done. We would have moved over there. My wife would have had a job and I would have had to take six months or who knows how long to find a permanent role. But yeah, for sure, doing well at Dell Tech helped me get over there. That's great. So you went over to Europe. We'll have to save selling in Europe for another podcast. Yeah, yeah. But you ended up coming back and now you're working at Tableau. So when you came back, how did you decide what you wanted to do and what you wanted to sell now? Because you've had a very successful tenure back to the U.S., Northern Virginia, like how you decided where you wanted to work and what you wanted to do next. Yeah, it's a good question. So I was in Amsterdam for almost three years. For a year and a half of that, I worked for Dell Tech. And then at one point I said, okay, I kind of want to do something different. So I actually joined a Dutch startup called MessageBird. At the time, they had gotten the largest angel investment of any startup ever in Europe. It was only 50 million euro, but that was about what startups got over there. Since then, there have been quite a few other bigger ones, but MessageBird was a Y Combinator company. And for anybody that knows anything about the startup world, that is a huge, it's one half of 1% of the startups get this, and especially European startups. So it was very attractive. 
They were doing some really cool things around enterprise messaging for enterprises. So I worked for them for about another, about another year. And then that was the time where we started looking back and saying, okay, with COVID and everything, if there's any time to move back to the States, we need to do it. If we stay any longer, we might not come back, be too hard. So we started looking back and I knew I wanted to go again to a bigger company, always wanted to land in data and analysis and Tableau being the premier BI reporting and analysis platform, was able to get into the financial services vertical. So I sell now to banks and insurance companies for them. And I love it. Work with a small team of about seven out of DC. I'm back in Winchester, so it would be quite a commute, but we're working out of the house. Currently going through the Salesforce acquisition. Salesforce purchased Tableau last year for almost 18 billion. So it's significant. So very excited to be, my wife left Salesforce and now I'm there, which is very interesting. It's hard, hard to get away, but absolutely love it. And things are going extremely well, teed up to be one of a very large part of the Salesforce analytics cloud, which is the future of the Salesforce 360 mentality, right? So Tableau, along with the Einstein product will make up the Salesforce analytics cloud and the rest is history. Trey, share with the listeners, how do you keep your sales skills sharp? Yeah, so that's a great question. So early on, especially when I was with you guys and earlier in my sales career, read all the books, spin selling, solution selling, conversations with Vito. Remember that one? Yeah. So books were really big. I think the way a lot of us more tenured salespeople have leaned has been podcasts. And let me see here. No rush. I'm learning. So in terms of podcasts, the one I'm most into right now is sales success stories with Scott Ingram. He's all about interviewing the top 1% of sales execs across high tech. It is incredibly interesting to be able to hear the stories and the mindset of the top 1% of sellers. For example, right now I'm listening to him interview Teradata's top enterprise rep, Lisa Palmer, who in my opinion may be the best salesperson I've ever come across. Never met her personally, but just listening to her experience makes a huge impact in how I sell and trying to do my best to fill in gaps that these top 1% share during those podcasts. And I listen to a handful of other podcasts, but I think in terms of being the most impactful, I would urge, especially those who are looking to transition into the highest enterprise level of sales, this is a very impactful podcast to listen to. So sometimes I'll augment that with going back and listening or rereading some of the foundational sales books. But sales has changed so much, especially in the times of COVID, that a lot of these podcasts are highly relevant to the way sales has changed. Mm -hmm. So yes, the foundations are still important. But in between there, right in between the foundations that you need and where we are today, you have to be aware of everything that's changing and how the environment has changed in terms of COVID, for sure. We were really lucky here at Tableau to have some pretty darn good years last year, despite everything. But yeah, I certainly try to apply as much sharpening the saw to what I do every day as I can. And I think it's helped me. Trey, what are some of the mistakes you've seen some of your memorable contemporaries make? That might not be the best question to ask. I guess, what are the mistakes you think Memory Blue folks who are listening, what do you think they should avoid as they kind of move down their career path when they're thinking about what they want to do next, the role, the company, the boss? What are some, some of the things they need to like maybe 
know, little things that landmines they want to stay away from? That's a great question. And it's an important question, right? Because if we don't really examine what we, good salespeople examine what they do well, great salespeople examine what they don't do well too, right? But really what I would advise and some mistakes you can get in early on in your sales career is getting into a comfort mindset. And you're trained so well wherever you're trained, but if you're trained by Mark and Chris, you trained so well that it's easy to forget that that's the foundation, but it's important to build upon your foundation. And it's your job after Memory Blue to see where that foundation can lead you. And I'll admit early on in my career, I fell into staying with a company for maybe a couple of years longer than I should have. And don't get me wrong, I learned a lot from being there even in those extra years, but could have moved at twice the speed if I would have had a more growth mindset, if I would have continued that growth mindset. So my advice is always keep that next step and that next level top of mind and remember why you're being competitive. You're being competitive for yourself, but also for your career, your family, and because you don't want to stay stagnant. Love it. Lots of wisdom today, Trey. Good. Glad I can share. You know, man, maybe Lisa Palmer should listen to this podcast, Trey. Who's that? Lisa Palmer. <laughs> there you go. The guest on Sales Success Stories. She doesn't even know who I am. <laughs> Everyone has something to offer, but more importantly, thank you. You dropped some good knowledge. I took some great notes. So I'm going to reflect on some of this stuff tonight. But I appreciate you joining us. I know Chris does too. Yeah, Trey, this was great. Good. I'm glad. I had a ton of fun, guys. Yeah, definitely. Welcome back to United States soil. It feels good. Awesome. For almost two decades, Memory Blue has helped high-tech firms tackle their sales development challenges and carve out bigger market share in their space. Building and executing a carefully designed multi-touch cadence that generates a flow of sales qualified leads is the hallmark of our business. Our flexible solutions and talented professionals produce real results that clients can bank on. The end goal of our outreach is scheduling a qualified meeting so you can provide a comprehensive discovery call and bring the sale to a close. This carefully crafted process produces new business opportunities that have converted into over $1 million in closed deals. Hundreds of high-tech companies have trusted Memory Blue to help them grow, penetrate new markets, and test the viability of a new product. If you're interested in learning more about Memory Blue's full sales development services, head to memoryblue.com sales. for listening to Tech Sales is for Hustlers. Please subscribe and leave a five-star review after the beep.